بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد Alhamdulillah, this is lesson 56 in the Radiant Light covering the Medinan period of the seerah of Al-Mustafa sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. And from the beginning of our journey into this Medinan period until now, we have been looking at what has taken place in just the first year of the Hijrah. The Prophet ﷺ called people to Allah Ta'ala for 13 years in Mecca. And he spent 10 years on his prophetic mission in Medina before passing away. And we've covered one year, not even one year, in the first of the 10 years he was in Medina. That means we have still nine more years to go in covering the events of the seerah. But we spend a lot of time in the beginning because we'd like to lay down foundations. Because the more foundations we lay down, the easier it is to understand what is happening in the subsequent years and all of the events. So after we establish these foundations and describe the fault lines, we'll understand why different tensions arose and why conflicts were brewing. We understand the nature of the fault lines and the struggles and conflicts between this group and that group. So, so far we spoke about how the Prophet ﷺ made the hijrah, how he was received by the people in Medina, and we talked about the three steps he took in laying down the foundations for the society whereby Yathrib is Medina, Darul Islam, Darul Hijrah. First was the construction of the masjid. Second was establishing the pact of brotherhood between the Muhajirun and the Ansar. And the third was the covenant of Medina, Mithaqu Medina, the agreement, the covenant that was drawn up between the Prophet and the people of Medina among the Aws and the Khazraj, as well as the three Jewish tribes and others. So last week we spoke about how those three Jewish tribes, whom we identified and spoke a little bit about in their history and how they got there, we spoke about how they received the Prophet ﷺ, and we also spoke about some of the ways in which they attempted to sow dissension within the ranks of the Ummah. How they tried to stir fitna among the community, hoping that things would disintegrate and eventually go back to a previous norm where they had the power and influence. They had things under control and they gained financially and socially. We also talked a little bit about the background of the Munafiqun and we talked about uh, Abu Amir and we talked about his cousin Abdullah bin Ubayr bin Salul, two cousins, one from Aws and one from Khazraj, one of whom was self exiled and remained exiled for the rest of his life because he was a charlatan who left and the other who chose to stay and became the head of this new group of people that had only appeared now, the group known as the Munafiqun, the hypocrites. So in this 
first year, we understand the Prophet ﷺ made hijrah. He is now in a place of relative safety and security and power relative to Mecca, which did not have that kind of safety and security and power. And he is in Medina and thereby surrounded by believers. The majority of the people around him are Muhajirun and Ansar. And though he is around mostly believers, we understand that his mission of summoning people to Allah, at da'wah in Allah, continues. Because that is a universal mission that is for all of humanity until the end of time. The da'wah of the Prophet ﷺ was not limited to Mecca. It continued into Medina. It continued out from the Arabian Peninsula and beyond and continues until the end of time. So we want to frame the seerah in light of this reality. Though there is a political base, a base of strength and political authority where the believers have safety, relative safety compared to Mecca, is still a mission of da'wah. And though Medina compared to Mecca was a place of safety, especially in the first year or so, the Muslims didn't always feel that safety. There are narrations in the Sira works which describe how the companions say they spent the first year or so sleeping and walking around with their swords because they were unsure of whether or not they would be raided or attacked by Quraysh or any of the people allied with Quraysh from the other tribes. This is before technology, before there were any radios or telephones. So there's ways of finding out if you have an advanced party, but it's tricky because you're talking about outlying tribes beyond Medina that may or may not be allied with Quraysh and working with them. So for the first year, they were on guard a lot. So in the first year, the Quraysh recognizing that the Prophet ﷺ has left Mecca for Medina, as well as the bulk of the Muslims in Mecca, they want to take advantage of the fault lines within Medina. What are the fault lines? We don't say there's fault lines between the Aws and the Khazraj because they have been coming together. Allah joined their hearts together. The fault lines are between the Muslims on the one hand, the three Jewish tribes on the other, and the Munafiqun. So these are these fault lines. Quraysh wants to exploit these fault lines and they want to find ways to take advantage of their pre the presence of Munafiqun to send messages to them and to other uh, people lagging behind among Mushrikun and Munafiqun encouraging them to fight the Prophet ﷺ. So at first, we don't have any instance of Quraysh planning to mount an all-out assault on Medina. What we find in the seerah is them sending letters back and forth to the heads of the Munafiqun and the Mushrikun who remained on shirk and allied with those people, encouraging them to revolt, to commit to an uprising that would overthrow the power of the Prophet ﷺ. So, Conflict is brewing. It's on the horizon. It hasn't yet arrived, but it's definitely coming. 
And that is where we are in the seerah in the first year. And having reached this point in the first year, it brings us to the critical juncture of the seerah. We can easily identify in the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ these critical moments where things would change forever. We have, of course, the birth of the Prophet ﷺ. Then we have key events along the way. And then we have wahi. And then we have the command for hijrah. Very pivotal moments in the history of Islam that are between other similarly powerful moments, but these are pivotal. So we come now to a very critical juncture in the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, and that is jihad fi sabirillah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Sacred, martial struggle for the sake of Allah, and so that His word is uppermost. Al-jihadu fi sabirillah. And the ulama mention that uh, as a concept, Jihad went through four stages in the time of the Prophet So we're not defining jihad just yet because the, the definition and the scope of it would change over time. So the very first stage of jihad is that martial jihad, al-jihadu bisayf, al-jihad bil-qital, right, the martial physical jihad, that was actually forbidden in the very beginning in the history of Islam, it was forbidden. And the very first mention of jihad in the Qur'an is in a Meccan surah, in surah Al-Furqan. But in that time, martial jihad was forbidden. So the usage of the word jihad in surah Al-Furqan does not have a, does not come in the context of combat. It comes in the context of struggling with one's words and with preaching and calling people to Allah Ta'ala and refuting their false arguments. Allah Ta'ala reveals in that chapter, وَجَاهِدْهُمْ بِهِ جِهَادًا kabira, And strive against them with it, بِالْقُرْآنِ With the Qur'an, a strong, powerful struggling. That is the first mention of jihad in the Qur'an. Struggling to establish the truth through calling people to Allah Ta'ala. The other form of legislated jihad in the Meccan period was jihadun nafs, the struggle against the impulses of the ego, the jihad against the lower self. And of course, al-jihad bil-karima, or al-jihad bil-Qur'an, bil-da'wah, these kinds of jihad of by summoning people to Allah and discussing with them and responding to false arguments, that endures until the Day of Judgment. Likewise, jihad al-nafs endures until the Day of Judgment. People will always have the duty of struggling against the lower impulses of their ego. But at this time, in the Meccan period, al-jihad al-bisayf, the physical martial jihad, was prohibited. And, and this is why we said before, uh, on several occasions, the Qur'an al-Kareem itself is a book of seerah. It is by studying the seerah in conjunction with the Qur'an that you come to understand a lot of the meanings of the ayat of Qur'an. All of these verses that are revealed in Mecca where Allah Ta'ala is encouraging the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslim community to be patient. That's in the context of jihad being forbidden because they didn't have the adequate strength and means and ability and responding with any kind of physical force 
would have completely wiped off Muslims from the map. So you have encouragements to patience. Allah Ta'ala is saying that He will suffice you. Stories of the previous prophets and the nations before them and what they struggled with and what they endured and how Allah dealt with those nations. Verses that describe those struggles as a tasliyah or consoling to the heart of the Prophet ﷺ, mentioning the reward for being patient and steadfast. And verses that say, وَمَا عَلَيْكَ إِلَّا الْبَلَاغ only, The only duty on you is to convey the message. So these are verses revealed in that context in Mecca, when the martial jihad, al-jihad al-bisayf, was forbidden. So how long was uh, martial jihad forbidden? 13 years. For the entirety of the Meccan period, the physical jihad was forbidden. So now we come to the second stage, where after jihad safe, martial jihad was forbidden, now there comes idhn, permission, permission, not an obligation, but a permission to engage in martial jihad. And that was revealed uh, in this period of the hijrah, in the first year. This is revealed in Surah Al-Hajj. In Surah Al-Hajj, Allah gave idhn, gave permission for the believers to respond when aggressed upon. And Allah Ta'ala says, أُذِنَ لِلَّذِينَ يُقَاتَلُونَ بِأَنَّهُمْ ظُلِمُوا وَإِنَّ اللَّهَ عَلَى نَصْرِهِمْ لَقَدِيرٌ الَّذِينَ أُخْرِجُوا مِنْ دِيَارِهِمْ بِغَيْرِ حَقٍ إِلَّا أَنْ يَقُولُوا رَبُّنَ اللَّهِ وَلَوْ لَا دَفْعُ اللَّهِ النَّاسَ بَعْضَهُمْ بِبَعْضٍ لَهُدِّمَتْ صَوَامِعُ وَبِيَعٌ وَصَلَوَاتٌ وَمَسَاجِدُ يُذْكَرُ فِيهَا اسْمُ اللَّهِ كَثِيرًا وَلَيَنْصُرُنَّ اللَّهُ مَنْ يَنْصُرُهُ إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَقَوِيٌّ عَزِيزٌ In these verses in Surah Al-Hajj, Allah gives even permission to engage in martial jihad. He says permission has been given to those who are being fault because they were wronged. And Allah is indeed all-powerful incapable of giving them victory. Who are these people? Allah says, they are the ones who were evicted from their homes without right, only because they say, Allah, our Lord is Allah. And were it not that Allah checks some people by means of others, there would have been demolished monasteries, churches, synagogues, and mosques in which the name of Allah is mentioned abundantly, and Allah will surely support those who support Him. Indeed, Allah is powerful and exalted in might. So, This is not a command, this is an idhan or a permission. So it's not wajib yet, it's permitted. And the reason why the permission is given is because, as Allah says in this very verse, because they were wronged, they were oppressed. Zulimu. And what else does Allah say about these people who are oppressed? Those who were kicked out of their homes because they said, Rabbun Allah. That describes the Muhajirun, right? And then Allah Ta'ala says what would happen on a larger scale if this were not, if this permission was not granted. What would be the long-term effects if uh, pacifism was a command to be endured forever? The, the consequence is what Allah says here. 
if Allah did not check some people by means of others. So ultimately it's Allah preventing it by means of other people. There go that there comes that ba'asababiya again that we have to understand as Muslims to remove so much confusion from our minds. It is Allah checking people by means of other people. Check some people by means of other people. If Allah did not do that, what would be the consequence? He says in this verse, the monasteries, churches, synagogues, and mosques in which Allah's name is mentioned would be demolished, they would be destroyed. So this is when jihad becomes permitted, yet not wajib, not, not obligatory yet. We now come to stage three, which is when jihad goes from being permitted to being wajib, obligatory. And that is when jihad became wajib against Quraysh in particular, and not against other people. So the majority of the Medinan period is when jihad was wajib against the Quraysh only. And it's only at the end of the story of the seerah that we really get to stage four, which is when the Prophet ﷺ is commanded to establish the base of power and wage jihad against all of the mushrikun in Mecca and outside of Mecca in the entire jazeera, right? So this is the stages we see in the development of, uh, of jihad from a moral and da'wah form or a, a spiritual form to a combative form that was permitted to a combative form that is commanded uh, but is still limited in scope and then one that is general for the Arabian Peninsula. So there's of course a broader and more detailed discussion to be had on the meaning and nature of jihad as a concept both uh, in its offensive and defensive uh, means and measures as well as all of the rulings concerning its validity, its conditions, its impediments, what would make it allowed, what would make it not allowed, uh, and that's not really for us to go into at this moment. We're not apologetic about our legal tradition. We're not apologetic about what Allah Ta'ala has legislated in the Qur'an and given to the Prophet wasallam. And if we recognize, as others do, in the concept known as just war theory, where people have a moral right to defend themselves if they are aggressed against, then there should be no problem with us as Muslims affirming jihad as a beautiful concept that when done properly according to the guidelines of sharia preserves the religion, it preserves human life, it preserves wealth and well-being for the ummah and even assists and delivers uh, others who are not from the ummah from oppression. But that is a longer conversation to be had. Likewise, jihad is not vigilantism. Jihad is not vigilantism where a person can just preemptively declare it on behalf of everyone else in the ummah and take matters into their own hands. Uh, ultimately, as the, the physical jihad, ha with its conditions, its shurut and mawani', its preconditions and its impediments, it is a leg legislated matter that is not purely ta'abudi, right? It's not just an act of devotion, right? Praying dhuhr as four rak'ahs and not five, that's ta'abudi. You don't add a fifth rak'ah, 
because the four rak'ahs is legislated specifically for dhuhr, do you know why it's four and not five? No. You just do it because that's the command. You don't have a clear rational basis. It's not mu'allal bi'illah. It's not linked to a, a rational thing, why it's four and not five. But jihad is not ta'abudi. It's mu'allal. It's connected to a legal reason. There is a reason why it happens. And if those things are not in place or if conditions are not met, then it's not just something you do no matter what. If those things are not met, then other measures are taken. And because it is not a vigilante act, that means it is the prerogative of the sultan. It is the, the, the prerogative of the ruler, the shari ruler. And the jurists have a very important principle. They say, تَصَرُّفَاتُ sultan مَنُوطَ بِالْمَصْلَحَ They say that the way in which the sultan acts politically around for his subjects and, and beyond, it is conditioned on securing benefit. It's not just blindly going out there. So that's a longer conversation. Uh, but now, as we're in the first year of the hijrah, that permission is granted after it was not granted for 13 years. So conflict in the dunya is inevitable. And it is the sunnah of Allah Ta'ala in His creation that one force has to check another force or else oppression will reign supreme. There has to be one force that checks another force. And this brings us to that significant part of the seerah which is itself a sub-genre in the field of Sira, the field known as Maghazi. When you go to the Medinan period of the Sira, if you go to any average Sira book and look through the table of contents, almost straight away, you, you know, the battle of this, the expedition of that, the Ghazawat and the Saraya, one after the other. So to understand the Sira in the Medinan period, you need to understand the significance of this sub-genre of the seerah itself, the ilmul maghazi. We've said before that these sciences or subjects that pertain to the person of the Prophet ﷺ can be divided in different ways. We have seerah, we have shema'il describing his physical and moral qualities. We have the khasa'is describing the unique things given to him and given to the ummah. We have Dela'irun Nabuwa or the accounts of the miracles and the signs of prophethood. And we have Maghazi. Right? Now, why do we divide them into four or five? Could we, do, could we divide them into three or two or one? Absolutely. There's no issue really with categorization. It's just meant to be a facilitation for understanding the various aspects of things concerning Rasulullah. So you could say that all of this is seerah and that the seerah is everything pertaining to the person of the Prophet ﷺ, which means that in seerah you have the physical and moral descriptions, you have the unique things given to him, you have the life story, and you have the battles, right? But in the early period, as these sciences were being developed and written down and codified, the term maghazi was basically synonymous for Sira, and Sira was synonymous with Maghazi. 
So I want to introduce a little bit about maghazi as a subgenre of seerah and how it developed and its importance because whenever we talk about the seerah at this stage in the battles, we're going back to very well-known sources. The sources are scattered to an extent, but they were collected at a very early stage in Islamic history and virtually all of the authorities concerning the battles are drawing from one major source. So understanding where we get, it, where we get this knowledge from is important. So Maghazi. Um, I, I was thinking of a, of a bit of a tangent I wanted to go into today. I don't know if I'll mention it. Okay, I will. Uh, a, a little bit about teaching, a, a tangent on teaching, because as, as I was preparing for this and thinking about it, I wanted to address this topic. Uh, when it comes to teaching in general and teaching seerah in particular, I would want everyone to understand a couple of things. A lot of the classes on Islamic topics in the English-speaking world and even beyond, in Urdu-speaking and even Arabic-speaking, in the Arabic-speaking world, a lot of the talks that are out there are more or less religious entertainment. A lot of them are. I would say even most of them are. They're presented in a very compelling format where it's more entertainment than educational. And it's educational, but as edutainment, educational entertainment. So it's a lot of stories, a lot of anecdotes, a lot of preaching and exhorting mixed in with the story, uh, a lot of elevated voices and emotional descriptions. And there's definitely a value in, for that. There's a place for that and a value in it. But it's not a replacement for proper structured classes. It's never going to replace that. On the other hand, when you study these things in a formal structured way, it can very often become very tedious and detailed oriented to the point of boring people. And it only draws a certain kind of person who's more intellectually inclined, who wants to go into the nitty gritty details concerning these subjects. We have a need for both. That's the issue. As Muslims, we have a need for both. And usually when I, when I teach these kinds of classes, I try to judiciously take from both. I try to be detail oriented, and I try to go take everything back to foundations so that we can understand things, while also bringing up relevant points that uh, are somewhat inspiring or relevant or we can connect between that lesson and our own lives. I can't say I'm always successful in that because there's always a bit of sacrifice to be made when you're trying to present something that spans volumes in a single class of 50, 55 minutes. So I try both approaches, but I'm not always successful. So I say that to say, if you study this science and others by learning the arch principles and the definitions of terms and the guidelines for how you approach the subject and how you can reconcile different texts, you can gain from that the keys to understanding that science, even if you didn't finish it from beginning to end. Meaning, if you learned enough of the foundations and the keys to understanding in the beginning, even if you skipped a lot of classes, you could pick up a book of seerah, a reliable book of seerah, read it, and make sense of it 
with those keys in a way that you would not be able to do without those keys. So it's important to take things back to foundations and arch principles and how we reconcile various texts. The Sirah is a very highly developed genre and it has a lot to offer for specialists, but it is meant to be taught, read, and reviewed by everyday Muslims as well. It's not supposed to be an elitist science only accessible to specialists. It's meant for everybody because it has teachings for everyone. That means that we can't make it a boring reading, but we also can't just make it uh, entertainment without foundations. That's why I'm going into what Maghazi is and the types of jihad, because these are, these are important things to know about to get a better understanding of the seerah and how Islam works on a foundational level. So I appreciate your patience as we go into these backgrounds. For those of you who get bored by these things, inshallah it's of benefit and you see that benefit later similar to how a math teacher may bore the student with repetition of drills and foundations but the fruits all come later as they go deeper into into mathematics so back to maghazi we said maghazi is a sub genre in the science of seerah if we say seerah means the biography the life story of rasulullah then the maghazi is a subgenre, right? And the word maghazi comes from what word? Ghazwa, right? And ghazwa is defined as as-sayru ila qital al-adu. It basically means battle, right? Going to battle the enemy. And as a field of study, ilm al-maghazi records the battles and the expeditions of the Prophet the ones he participated in directly. And it also looks at the expeditions that he commanded and the ones he sent others out on, that he didn't go out on directly, but he dispatched. Now there's another term for those, but they're still in Maghazi. We call them Saraya from Sariya. So the Saraya are the expeditions that he didn't go on, but he sent others out on. And the Ghazawat are the battles that he went out on and participated in directly. So the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, it should be very obvious to anyone who's heard it, it can't be told properly without talking about war, without talking about battles, expeditions, and all of these things. That is why in the earliest period when this science was being collected, there was no essential difference between seerah and maghazi. A book would be called Kitabu Siyar, and the whole thing is about battles. Another one would be called Kitab al-Maghazi, and you'd find stories about the birth of the Prophet and his time in Mecca, and the Hijrah, and all of these things, and the battles. So if you, if you went to the Kitab al-Maghazi, one of the earlier collections, whoever wrote it, and you didn't see the cover, you would open it and read it and think this is a book of Sirah. You could see a book that has the title Sirah, and you open it, and it's just battle stories. So Maghazi and Sirah were interchangeable and basically synonymous with one another in that early period when the works were being compiled. So the first to collect these reports on the Maghazi, who was the first one to collect them and put them together? The scholars actually differ, surprise, surprise, about who was the first one. And it's really not a substantial difference. It's just a 
is kind of a semantic difference or a difference of perspective. Uh, Imam Ibn Sa'ad, he says that the first one to write about the Maghazi, the battles in particular, was Muhammad Ibn Ishaq, the author of the famous seerah of Ibn Ishaq, the basis for the seerah of Ibn Hisham. And Ibn Ishaq died in the year 151 Hijrah, very early on. Imam Suhaili, who is the author of Ar-Rawd al-Unuf, which is a commentary on the seerah of Ibn Hisham, which is based on the seerah of Ibn Ishaq, uh, Imam Suhaili, anyone know where he's buried? He's buried in Marrakesh, in Morocco. He says that the first to write on the Maghazi as a distinct genre was Imam Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri. Imam Zuhri was one of the great Imams, one of the great early Imams in our tradition. And he died in the year 124 after Hijrah. Imam al-Safadi, Imam al-Dhahabi, Imam Ibn Kathir and some others say, no, the first one to write independently on the battles was Urwa ibn Zubair and that was in the year and he died 93 after Hijrah so he's earlier than Ibn Ishaq as well the reason why these scholars differed about the first one to write about the Maghazi is because again there was no real distinction between Maghazi and Sirah or Siyar in that early time so those who would say it's exclusively battles, would look at those who wrote on exclusively battles. Those who think Maghazi refers to that general genre, which includes details about the life, they would put it, they would say others wrote earlier or later. So it's a difference of perspective. But the earliest works that we have today that still, still uh, um, survive in fragments are uh, from Zuhri, and those that were taken, that those who took from Zuhri's work and then took from others, uh, Ma'amar ibn Rashid, for instance, which is only preserved in the Musannaf of Ibn Abi Shayba, which was only rediscovered in you know, this century, or some years back, and printed. So you're talking really early on, a lot of manuscripts. So it's really when we get to the time of Muhammad ibn Ishaq, who's arranged all of those various earlier works and put them together that we get a full, holistic, complete account of all the Maghazi. So he puts not just fragmented stories from here and there, he collects the battles, the expeditions, the names and numbers of the fighters, those who were slain, those who survived, what took place, as well as the Ash'ar, the poetry that was recited subsequent and post-battle. So he's really the first one to solidify it and put it together in a really cogent way that we can take from today. But he wasn't necessarily the greatest authority in the Maghazi. The greatest authority in the Maghazi is one known as Al-Imam Al-Waqidi. Al-Imam Al-Waqidi was a Qadi in Iraq and this became his forte, his specialty. He specialized in the Maghazi as a particular interest, and he was the first to write about it as a completely independent genre. So yes, Ibn Ishaq has the more detailed accounts of Maghazi, but Ibn Ishaq Sirah has everything else too. But it was Al-Waqidi who wrote the first collection just on the battles, taking from the previous works and adding to them, 
and completely focused on battles and all of the accounts concerning the battles. That work of Imam al-Waqidi became the umda, the mainstay, the relied upon work on which every other authority after him relied. That became their mainstay. So every subsequent work coming after al-Waqidi, it all goes back to him. So he is that hujjah, that authority. And I say hujjah in a liberal way, not as a literal term. Uh, I mean, he's the main authority in the earliest period. So what we do determine from looking at the earliest writings in Maghazi, and the reason why we're going into this, is that the Sahaba themselves, as well as the Tabi'un and the third generation, paid a lot of attention to the science of Maghazi. It was not some side thing that they just wrote about in a work on the seerah. It was something they focused on very heavily in addition to memorizing and studying the meanings of the Qur'an. The Maghazi and the memorization of the Qur'an and its tafsir were paired together and were the two main uh, fields of study taught to young children. So we see in the early works the attention that the early Muslims gave to the science. The Sahaba would teach it to their children and also in the second generation and beyond. We have narrations such as that of uh, Imam Ali ibn Hussein Zain al-Abidin radiallahu anhu. He says, we would teach our children the maghazi just as we would teach a chapter of the Qur'an. Imam Muhammad bin Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, who is he? He is the grandson, so the son of Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. So the son of Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas says, كان أبي يعلمنا مغازي رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ويعدها علينا ويقول هذه مآثر آبائكم فلا تضيعوا ذكرها He would teach us the battles, the accounts of the battles of the Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم and he would say that these are the مآثر I don't know the best word in English but basically these, this is the, the legacy of our forefathers so do not let them go to waste and let them be lost so that became a maqsad a purpose to preserve those stories so that the lessons and the, the stories of valor and sacrifice would not be lost so they would teach their children Imam Zuhri used to say fi ilm al-maghazi ilm al-akhirati wa in the field of maghazi you have knowledge of the hereafter and the knowledge of dunya. So teaching the maghazi was hand in hand with teaching the Qur'an. And Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah, he would take one day out of each week as an adult, after the passing of the Prophet wasallam, when he was teaching people, he would take one day out of each week just to teach maghazi. Imagine. So let's say it could have been on a Wednesday or a Thursday. So Wednesday's class is just about battles just the stories of these battles and the heroic sacrifices of the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba. He was young when the Prophet ﷺ passed away. He didn't experience all of those battles. 
So what did he do and how did he learn about them? He tells us himself. He says, uh, I would spend time around the senior most companions of the Prophet ﷺ from the Muhajirun and the Ansar and ask them about the battles and what of the Qur'an was revealed at what place and at what time when they were on battles. Because you'll learn very quickly in tafsir that when you learn about this and that verse and the circumstances behind its revelation, you also learn this and that verse was revealed when they were on the road to a battle or when they were camping the night before a battle or after a battle. Right? So those verses are tied in with the events experienced and recounted in the Maghazi, hence the importance of knowing it. So this shows you that the Maghazi tradition is important for understanding the Qur'an and we also learn from this that the Qur'an becomes itself a source for Ilmul Maghazi because so many of the details of the battles, a lot of it was the internal things going on, are described in verses of Qur'an. So you have narrations that which describe the outer aspects of the Maghazi. SubhanAllah, think about this. The outer aspects of Maghazi. Who went where and how and how many archers and who did this and that and who was killed and who was not and what did they say. You have the outer aspects des described in the Maghazi and the Qur'an often reveals verses describing the inner states of people in those Maghazi. So by understanding the Maghazi in the narrations and the verses that connect to them, you understand the inner and outer aspects of the, the early Muslim community in battle and in sacrifice and those who had less than valorous actions among the hypocrites and others. So that tells you one of the benefits of Maghazi. There's other benefits too. It's a practical application of Islam as well because you see a lot of the narrations Describing what the Prophet ﷺ did are also in the context of journeying to and from an expedition, a battle. So just like the Qur'an is revealed in those places, events are also happening. Ahkam are derived from things happening in those, uh, in those journeys. There's, uh, you get basically a, a, a more vivid backdrop concerning the verses and chapters of the Qur'an. So the more you understand Maghazi and the details that are connected with those verses, the better you understand the verses. So understanding the Maghazi is a key to understanding the Qur'an. So just as understanding the Qur'an is a maqsad min maqasid al-Islam, an objective in itself, the means to that, the Maghazi is also a maqsad. So it is a means, an objective in itself to better understand the seerah of the Prophet So that introduces the field and shows you the importance of it. It's not a side thing, oh yeah, this battle happened. Battles are immense things. They're major things. And if, if you've been here from the beginning, this is lesson 56. If you've been here from the beginning, when we introduced the history of early Arabia and we had those uh, mental exercises to think about what it would be like to live and survive isolated, how you build a tribe and establish alliances. A lot of the realities in the seerah can only be understood by understanding human nature. And we're so disconnected from many aspects of human nature because of the way the world has been constructed 
that we look back on the seerah and we cannot, we cannot connect with it because it's a different lifestyle. The way they live is so vastly different from how we lived. So we want to understand a little bit about the lifestyle to better understand what they're going through. So that means we have to talk about war. War is a human reality. And it said that war is when mankind is at its worst. But the Prophet ﷺ is never at his worst. There is no worst. He's always at his best. And it's true. The Prophet ﷺ said, لا لقاء العدو. Do not hope to meet the enemy in battle. Right? Because it can be when mankind is at its worst and you never know what's going to happen. Yet, paradoxically, when you look at the history of humanity, war is often a time when people show the best of themselves as well. So just as war often brings the worst out of humanity, war is often something that brings the best out of humanity. So you have the greed and depravity that leads to war, but often in war you see bravery, you see loyalty, you see selflessness and sacrifice. And that's why when you do a survey of ancient literature, you see that some of the earliest recorded literature in human history is literature giving great detailed descriptions of war, right? The valor and sacrifice in war. So human civilizations often have among their first written documents, documents describing formative battles that established themselves. Uh, go back to the Greeks, right? Homer's epic describes 10 years of battle against Troy and then another 10 years of battle against you know, nature and mythological figures and so on. But it's at the, in the backdrop of war that certain philosophical lessons are explored, certain moral issues are discussed, and people learn about certain values of sacrifice and honor and so on. The earliest history that we have from the Greeks is from, from Thucydides, who wrote about the Peloponnesian War, and it was all about the war between Sparta and Athens. So the study of war, because Magazi is a study of war, the study of war is the study of life and human nature. The study of war teaches you the raw elements of what makes a human. So you learn the lessons of fear and power, of weakness and strength, of love and hate, life and death, loss and gain, sacrifice and cowardice, bravery, valor, and so on. All of these human qualities exist on every plane of human experience, but they are heightened and crystallized in the experience of war. That's when we see them in the most sharpest contrast. That's why learning about these teachings through stories of battle, uh, it becomes a lot more palpable and easy to understand than talking about them in daily life, if that makes sense. So we're going to learn about the Ghazawa or the Ghazawat, the battles that the Prophet ﷺ participated in, and the Saraya or the expeditions that the Prophet ﷺ sent the Sahaba on. And the question we want to end with is how many of these took place before we get into what was leading up to the first one. And the first battle, of course, is Badr. But before Badr, there are Saraya. 
right? So let's we'll talk about these together and conclude with this. How many of these took place? In Bukhari and Muslim, we have a hadith from Zayd ibn Arqam, the one who had the house, Dar Arqam. And he says that the Prophet wasallam participated in 19 ghazawat and did only one hajj. Meanwhile, in Sahih Muslim, we have a hadith of Burairah who says that the Prophet wasallam participated in 19 ghazawat and fought in only eight of them. So it's a ghazwa, but maybe there was a stalemate or a treaty or the enemy didn't show up. There's other reasons why fighting didn't occur. It's still a ghazwa. But of those, only eight did he participate in. What are those eight? Those eight would be Badr, Uhud, Ahzab, Al-Murayseer, Al-Qadid, Khaybar, and Fathu Mecca, and Hunayn. And you could add a couple more to those, so it would be more than eight. You can add Banu Mustalaq and Ta'if as well to this list. So that would make it ten in which there was some combat and not just eight. And as far as the Saraya are concerned, remember these are expeditions that others went on. When you get to the early Sira works, you see vastly different numbers given by different ulama. Ibn Ushaq list 30, Al-Waqidi list 48, and some other authorities listed 56, and some less and some more. And for a lot of these, we don't know a great deal about them. When you go to the classical Sira works, it will mention uh, Al-Sariya, Al-Fulaniya, it occurred in this year, and that's it. It just tells you there was an expedition, presumably nothing happened, and we don't know anything about it. It could have been a reconnaissance mission where he sent a group of five or seven people to go out to this place to recon an area to see if the enemy's making any movements or preparations, and then they come back and report the information. So the Sariya isn't necessarily direct combat. It could be a reconnaissance mission or something of that sort. And so there's about 50 or so of those. Some of them only come in one line. Some of them have more detail. And we have a few of those before we get to Badr. So as we get to Badr coming next week and after that, we'll mention those in passing because they're relatively uh, small affairs compared to the Ghazwa of Badr. And inshallah, we'll conclude with this. Uh, I had something else I wanted to say, but I think I'll save it for next week. And it has to do with how we frame the understanding of war uh, and the ghazawat and how we as human beings relate to these stories in the present day. I think I'll save that. It's, it's kind of like rant material, but I think it's important. Uh, because people, a lot of people today, they, they like to think that they are, they are more evolved. They think, oh, I abhor violence and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a pacifist. Uh, and the lesson from this is that uh, it's not true. It's a delusion. Every single person in modern society basically uh, has other people in whatever government positions uh, with the ability or the implicit threat of violence on their behalf. So people live in certain delusions about how the world works. They think that they're somehow more evolved today when the same human tendencies that existed back then exist now, but it's just better concealed. Just like death and sickness is concealed today in the modern world, where you don't see dead bodies, you don't experience death like people did in the past, uh, or people who are sick, 
because they're in hospitals or hospice care. Uh, likewise, the same thing with war and conflict as a human reality. Uh, dunya is not a utopia, and we don't believe that dunya is utopia. So maybe we'll talk about that and how it connects to framing the ghazawat and understanding them. Because uh, this is our tradition, and we don't apologize about it, but we want to have everything framed in the most accurate way possible. And I think that is done by understanding human nature a little bit too, and how divorced many of us are from elemental human nature, as it has been since the beginning of humanity, or at least since, at least since Cain killed Abel, right? والله ورسوله أعلم وصلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم. We have time for your three questions, sir. The the hadith of Zayd bin Arqam and Buraida mentioned nineteen غزوات, and they say eight in which there was direct combat, but you have some narrations that indicate that he has participated in direct combat in the Ghazwa of Banu Mustaliq as well as Ta'if. So if you add those two, you get 10. You said Salah is 50. Uh, between, yeah, we could say between 20 upwards of 55, 56. There's some discrepancies, and it appears that the discrepancy stems from how we're defining the Sariya and the nature of the expedition. If it's literally an expedition, that means it's open-ended. It could be gathering intelligence or it could be to uh, preemptively stop an, enc an encroaching force. If it's just about combat, you're going to have a smaller number. If it's about reconnaissance or intelligence gathering, it's going to be bigger. So it's not really a, a, a fundamental difference. It's a difference of terminology. Yeah. So right. what about the ones after uh, the passing of Rasulullah What would we categorize those as in terms of the ones that were uh, organized by the Khalifa? I mean, as a, as a term, it would be a ghazwa, right? right? A ghazwa is simply a battle. But in, the, in this context, under the auspices of the Khalifa, he would be the one sending them out on, on battles, and he either goes directly or he doesn't. So in, in the case of Sira, we're defining Ghazwa as one that the Prophet ﷺ was in directly, that he marched out in, and the Sariya as one that he did not go on. Yeah. 